You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome students to the sixth and final lesson in the class Nature and Grace in the International Catholic University. In the last class, we defined sanctifying grace as a quality which is in the very center of our souls, what's called the essence of our soul as opposed to its powers, by which we are elevated to participate in God's nature, to partake in God's nature. As a quality, grace is not a substantial change in us so that we're changed into God, but it is what's called in Aristotelian terms an accident. Having defined grace then and distinguished it from actual grace, which is God aiding us and inspiring us to inner movement toward Him and supporting us, the next subject we have to ask about is how we get grace. Who causes grace in us? This is traditionally known as the efficient cause. How can grace enter into a person? And we must emphasize that the primary and sufficient cause of grace is God alone, because grace is a supernatural movement by which we participate in the very inner life of the Trinity. Only God can give us grace. Human beings cannot, by their acts, lead us for themselves to participate in the life of the Trinity. However, God never acts in a thing against its nature, and so a part of Him aiding and supporting us to prepare ourselves to receive grace, at least in those who've reached the age of reason, has to be our free will. Our free will is not the cause of grace except in the sense that we're disposed to receive it. In addition to God Himself being the direct and sufficient cause of grace, God also imparts to Christ the ability to cause grace also in His human nature. And Christ Himself institutes certain physical rituals, which are extensions of His flesh throughout time and space, by which grace is brought to us. These causes are traditionally referred to in theology as instruments. Christ's flesh is an instrument which is conjoined to His divinity. And the sacraments are instruments which are separated from His flesh and yet act by the power of His flesh. It leads all the sacraments except the Holy Eucharist which is His flesh itself. So the traditional analogy used for this is like the soul is joined to the hand and the hand is joined to the saw, and so the saw can accomplish something that it could not do in any sense unless it was joined through the hand to the soul. So the sacraments are like the touch of Christ throughout time and space, and they are related to Christ's humanity as Christ's humanity is related to His divinity, and that is what gives them the power to cause grace. Now, in order for a person to receive grace, they have to be prepared. But there's a distinction that is made in preparation. With respect to sanctifying grace itself, the human will has to be prepared to receive sanctifying grace. But with respect to the actual grace, which a person first receives to help and aid them in their preparation, there's no further preparation necessary. In fact, the movement of free choice on the part of man to receive grace is a part of God preparing him through actual grace. There's a famous text in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21. Convert us to yourself, O Lord, and we shall be converted. So our reception of grace, though it's never done against our consent, 
as a work is entirely the work of God. The movement of grace, even in its preparation, is principally from God. Therefore, unlike natural changes, which always take place gradually, God can either prepare a person to receive grace gradually or prepare them instantaneously to receive grace. In other words, they could actually be enemies of the church and by an actual grace given to them within, be instantaneously prepared to conversion. In fact, as you know, we have two famous conversions in the church, the one of which shows the gradual preparation on the part of God for this change within, which is St. Augustine's conversion. I mean, after all, it took place over, what, 35 years? Slowly but slowly but slowly, he was gradually prepared and couldn't believe and couldn't believe and couldn't believe. And finally, though he had intellectually accepted Christianity, he still hadn't, in his will, been converted and received grace. Then you remember, he heard the little boy in the garden singing, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read, tole et lege. And so he picked up the Bible and opened it to St. Paul, and he read that you should put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was the moment of his conversion. That was a preparation that occurred over a long period of time. But there is a more famous conversion whose feasts we celebrate in which there was no prior preparation at all to the reception of actual grace and therefore to the movement of the will to be open to receiving sanctifying grace. And that is, of course, the conversion of St. Paul. So, the primary cause of our conversion is always God. The disposing cause, the receptive cause, is us, our free choice, in the sense that it's in this that God seeks to give his gifts. As a result, St. Thomas asks if great grace is greater in some than it is in others. Now, as to the object of grace, namely communion with God in his own nature, the Trinity, obviously this can't be greater in one than in another because the Trinity is infinite. But as to the subject who receives grace, Grace inheres in the person to the extent that the person has allowed himself to be converted or to be changed. And so the preparation of a person to receive the action of grace, and this is done primarily through love, is greater in some than in others. And so we see a hierarchy in the church as to gifts. Everybody isn't exactly the same or exactly equal. God gives grace to each person according to the measure in which he wishes them to receive it. And of course, in the saints, we see a hierarchy. After all, there's nobody higher in heaven among angels or men than the Blessed Virgin because she was the most loved by God. Now, since God is the primary cause of grace, since he's the one that initiates grace within, one question has always arisen as to whether a person can know that they're in the state of grace. It's possible that God enlightens certain persons by a private revelation to know that they're in the state of grace because of some task that they must perform courageously to know that he will support them, like martyrdom. But apart from this, is it possible in examining my own condition to know with absolute certainty that I'm in the state of grace? Well, it's not, because the state of grace is found primarily through God's initiation within God. Therefore, no one, apart from a private revelation given to them, can have an absolute certainty that they're in the state of grace. Is it possible to have a relative or moral certainty that one is in the state of grace? Yes, if one sees the signs of actually possessing grace, namely, that a person's not aware of being in the state of mortal sin, they take delight in God, they hate worldly things, and they seek to practice their faith. In this, they can have a relative certainty that they're in the state of grace. And in fact, there was a famous case brought up about this, and this is reflected in the Catechism, where Joan of Arc, in her trial, was asked if she was in the state of grace. 
And the reason she was asked this question was because her judges wanted to trap her since she was an unlettered person. If she'd said, no, I'm not in the state of grace, then they would have burned her for a witch because all the things that she did must have been done by the inspiration of the devil. And if she'd said, yes, I am in the state of grace with certainty, then they would have burned her for a heretic because you can't know with certainty you're in the state of grace. So here were theologians trying to trip up this poor girl. And, well, I'll just read you the section on the Catechism about knowing whether or not you're in the state of grace, and you can see what Joan of Arc's reply was. Since it belongs to the supernatural order, this is 2005, grace escapes our experience and cannot be known except by faith. We cannot therefore rely on our feelings or our works to conclude that we are justified and saved. However, according to the Lord's words, thus you will know them by their fruits, which is a relative certainty. Reflection on God's blessings in our life and the lives of the saints offers us a guarantee that grace is at work in us and spurs us on to an ever greater faith and an attitude of trustful poverty. A pleasing illustration of this attitude is found in the reply of St. Joan of Arc to a question poses a trap by her ecclesiastical judges. Asked if she knew that she was in the state in God's grace, she replied, If I am not, may it please God to put me in it. And if I am, may it please God to keep me there. Thus confounding the tricky theologians who are trying to trip her up. Once we decided on what the cause of grace is, something that God sows in us, and all he asks of us is that we respond, this leads us to the final consideration of this class, which are the two effects of grace. Described in one translation as God working in us and God working with us. The first effect is where God gives us the grace of conversion to begin with. The second effect is where we seek to respond to the gifts that God has given us because they are his gifts. If you remember in the last lesson, I talked to you about the servant who buried the talent. St. Thomas, in commenting on this text, says, God requires nothing from us but what he has sown in us. Hence, this saying, I reap or I do not sow, is to be understood as expressing either the shameful thought of the lazy servant who deemed that he had received nothing from the other, or the fact that God expects from us the fruit of his gifts, which fruit is from him and from us, although the gifts themselves are from God without us. So, God works in us, and then God works with us. Traditionally, the initial gift of grace on God's part, remember, which he helps to prepare us to receive, even our free will, is termed operating grace. And it is expressed by the theological term justification. It is an effect, not a cause of grace. When God works with us, we actually participate in attaining our reward from our little part. The traditional term used in theology for this is cooperating grace, and another word used to express our participation in being moved by God is merit. No one can merit justification by his works. Our works cannot bring forth justification. Furthermore, when St. Thomas begins his discussion of justification, which is in question 113 of the section on the Summa where he deals with this, he asks first if justification involves the forgiveness of sins. Now, here St. Thomas makes use, again, a term I brought up for you before, but I wish to explain more fully now. And that is what is called metaphorical justice. The term justice here does not refer to the virtue of justice, whereby a person has the constant and perpetual will to give the good to another. It rather refers to a person being rightly ordered in his soul 
to his ultimate end, the ultimate end being God himself. And a person who is not rightly ordered in that way, as we are in the original sin, has to be turned to be like that if he is going to receive back justification. Now, in Adam's case before the sin, justification would not have involved the forgiveness of sins. Why? Because he didn't have any sins to be forgiven. He didn't have to be turned from being in one state to being in another state, which was its contrary. Another word you could use for this is that Adam did not have to be converted before the sin. But after the sin, we do have to be converted. And so we go from one term to another. Justification, therefore, in us involves primarily the forgiveness of sins first. But then the question arises, is justification only the forgiveness of sins? Now, people of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and others, believe that justification was only the forgiveness of sins because you remember that they believed that the forgiveness of sins was only an imputation on the part of God. In other words, God overlooked our sins. He did not actually bring about a true change within us with respect to our sins. Now, neither St. Thomas nor Catholic doctrine is of that opinion. In other words, justification to be the forgiveness of sins demands more than just that our sins be overlooked. It demands that we also experience participation in divine nature, which we cannot do unless we have the divine indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And so the Catechism, speaking of justification, talks about what the nature of justification is and says this, the grace of the Holy Spirit has the power to justify us. This is 1987. That is to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. God gave himself to us through his Spirit. By the participation of the Spirit, we become communicants in the divine nature. For this reason, those in whom the Spirit dwells are divinized. The first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion, effecting justification in accord with Jesus' proclamation at the beginning of the gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Moved by grace, man turns toward God. This is what conversion is. It's a turning from one state to another. Man turns toward God and away from sin thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. Justification, therefore, is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. So, in order for us to be made right, it is absolutely necessary that we in our inner man receive a form receive a plus that's added to our nature by which we also participate in the grace of the Holy Spirit himself. Therefore, for justification, especially of an adult now, because here we're talking mostly about adult conversion, not babies who are baptized before they make reasoning acts. For the adult conversion, there is a double movement of free choice required. One is the renunciation of sin and the other is the movement of faith to approach God. We can see this in the ritual for baptism. The ritual for baptism has you first say, do you renounce Satan? I do renounce him. And all his works, I do renounce them. And all his earthly pomps, I do renounce them. That's the movement of free choice toward the renunciation of sin. Then free choice moves to the contrary movement which is approaching God. Do you believe in God the Father, etc., etc.? I do believe, three times we say I do believe, to express faith in the Trinity. The justification of sinners then involves both a renunciation of sin and an acceptance of the Lord.
Now, again, conversion or justification can take place instantaneously because God isn't bound, since He's the one that gives it. I mean, He creates the disposition and He also brings it about. He's not bound to prepare a person gradually, although God could, if He wanted to, prepare a person gradually. He prepared the apostles gradually to receive Him. This is because in the natural order, the first thing from the point of view of God in justification is not the forgiveness of sins, but the imparting of the Holy Spirit in grace. Now, from the order of time, that's not the way a person perceives it. The way a person perceives it, the first thing is their own desire for the forgiveness of sins. But when you're speaking about the nature of something in itself, the first effect has to be the one that flows from the highest down, the one in which the form is primarily imparted. Suppose you're talking about lightening the air. Which comes first, the darkness or the light? Well, from the point of view of the air receiving the darkness, the darkness comes first. But from the point of view of the sun imparting the light to the darkness, the light comes first. So if we're talking about a person's psychological experience of their justification, the first thing would be their renunciation of sin. But if we're talking about what actually causes that in the primary order of things, that would be God's infusion of grace. St. Thomas asks in his Summa in the next question, if justification is the greatest of God's works. Now here he makes a distinction, but it's a very beautiful distinction. And there's a quotation in this article, which is very important to understanding how grace operates. And I've personally seen in my own experience of life. St. Thomas replies, as the manner of acting, creation is the greatest, because in creation you bring something into being from nothing. But if you're talking about the greatness of the work itself, justification is greater. Because by justification, a creature is elevated to participate in the very inner life of the Creator Himself. Creation is completed with temporal things. Justification is completed with eternal things. And in the reply to objection two, St. Thomas says, the good of the universe is greater than the particular good of the individual if each is taken in the same kind or genus. But the supernatural good of the grace of one person is greater than the natural good of the entire created universe because it arrives directly at God. The Catechism expresses this in 1997. Justification is the most excellent work of God's love, made manifest in Christ Jesus and granted by the Holy Spirit. It is the opinion of St. Augustine that the justification of the wicked is a greater work than the creation of heaven and earth, because heaven and earth will pass away, but the salvation and justification of the elect will not pass away. He also holds that the justification of sinners surpasses the creation of the angels in justice and that it bears witness to a greater mercy. Now I've experienced this in my own life. When I was a young priest, I was locking up the church. I always encourage the priest not to underestimate the value of locking up the church. And as I was locking up the church, there was a woman riding by on a bicycle. And she stopped me and asked me if I was a Catholic priest and this was the Catholic church. And I said, yes. And she said, well, you know, I was never raised with a religion. I've never been baptized. I'm married to a Catholic man who's in the Navy, but he doesn't practice his religion. Do you have inquiry classes in this church? Because I'd like to inquire about what Catholicism is. I'm very curious. So I said, sure. Well, anyway, this girl came to the classes and in one of the classes, we treated of the subject of grace. And the particular book we were using quoted this quotation from St. Augustine. One soul in the state of grace is a greater work of God than the entire created universe. 
When this woman heard that, she said, I want grace. Just like that. Now here we see God's infusion operating in a soul. This person had very little preparation. They were moved to come and inquire. I think this was like the second or third lesson in the class. And we have a confession moved by this understanding of the greatness of the work of justifying sinners. I want grace. The last question that has to be treated when we come to justification is, if justification is a miraculous work. Now, this very much relates to the beginning of the class. You remember, hopefully, way back there, where we talked about Cardinal Cajetan saying that there was only an obediential potency to the reception of grace on the part of man. And now, if there's only an obediential potency, that means that grace is purely and simply a miracle. Remember, Balaam's asked to prophesy there's only an obediential potency for the wind and the sea to be calmed by Jesus' word, there's only an obediential potency because everything that's created has a potency within it to act according to the Creator's word, even if that's present in its nature or not. And you remember that Cajetan maintained that there was no power in man that was kapax dei, capable of grace. All right. St. Thomas says that there are three elements in a miraculous work. The first element is that the agent which brings the work about brings something about which is completely beyond the power of the normal agent, the person, the thing, to attain. Now, in this sense, justification is miraculous. No human work can justify sinners. But the second way that something's miraculous is that the form which is communicated to it must be completely beyond the natural power of the thing to receive it. In other words, the first criteria is that it's beyond the natural power of the thing to do it. The second criteria is that it's completely beyond the natural power of the thing to receive it, like for a donkey to talk. I mean, there's no natural power in the donkey whatsoever to receive the power of speech. St. Thomas says, in this way, justification is not miraculous. In fact, there is in man the capability of receiving grace. Why? Because of the intellect. The intellect is naturally drawn to know the cause of all the effects known by it. In this sense, justification is not miraculous. But there is a natural, passive, dispositive potency to receive justification. The third way in which justification can be miraculous is where the effect is produced completely outside the normal order of cause and effect. Now, let me give you an example of this. That water should become wine is not completely outside the normal processes of nature. I mean, it happens in nature. Water becomes wine through the process of fermentation in the grapes. Or maybe a better example to use would be that bread should become a human body is not completely outside the normal processes of nature because by digestion, bread becomes human tissue in me. But that bread should become a human body instantaneously, that it should preserve its accidents without the substance, that it should do this by the word of a man instantaneously, this is completely outside the normal order of cause and effect. A similar thing is true in some conversions. Some conversions occur completely outside the normal order of cause and effect, where God works almost instantaneously in the person, even when they're not inclined to God himself. And this would be the case with the conversion of St. Paul. Let me read the text to you in this translation, because this is a very important question, and it bears repeating. This is Article 10. The reconciliation of the unrighteous is not a miracle outside the power of nature. For as St. Augustine says, to be able to have faith or love of charity is natural to man, though actually attaining them is a grace reserved to believers. If we characterize miracles or marvels as things that need a marvelous cause like the power of God, 
than the creation and all the other things only God can do are miracles. But if we limit miracles to cases of matter taking on some form beyond its natural capacity, dead bodies come to life, for example, in the resurrection, then the reconciliation of the unrighteous is not miraculous, since the soul has a natural capacity for grace being made in God's image. Notice he doesn't say the soul of Adam created in grace. No. Why was Adam created in grace? Because God was good, and there was a natural capacity in man to receive grace, and it was very fitting for God to give man grace. But three, if miracles are defined as events outside the usual order, customary order of cause and effect, instantaneous healing, then the reconciliation of the unjust is sometimes miraculous and sometimes not. The common and customary course of reconciliation starts with God moving the soul inwardly so that man turns to God first imperfectly and then more perfectly, like was the case of the apostles or maybe with St. Augustine. But sometimes God moves the soul to perfection instantaneously as in St. Paul's case, and such a reconciliation is miraculous. So from the point of view of the ability to receive the form which is grace, the justification of sinners is not a miraculous work. Therefore, we have to say that it cannot be thought to be miraculous under every single aspect. Well, that leads us to the final effect of God's grace, which is cooperating grace or merit. Now, the fact that we participate in attaining our reward is evident from the scriptures. In the Gospel according to St. Matthew, you remember that Jesus says at the last judgment, the Son will separate the good from the wicked like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he says to the good, Come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, because when I was hungry you gave me to eat, when I was thirsty you gave me to drink, when I was naked you clothed me, when I was in prison you came to visit me, etc. And then the good ask, when did we do this? And they list it. And he says, as long as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And the opposite occurs with respect to the wicked. Now this means that man has some part, some teeny little part even, but some part in realizing his destiny or in the reception of grace. I shouldn't say the reception of grace. He has some part in attaining the final reward which grace gives him the ability to attain. So it's not grace that we merit, it's glory. No one can merit the initial grace. We can merit the fact by our cooperation that because our freedom becomes more attuned to grace, we experience grace more. And grace is in some sense a reward given to us by God himself for the gifts he has given to us to begin with. The first question to ask then is, how is it possible for man to merit something from God? All right, merit is a kind of reward. Reward is a tit for tat. It's a reflection of justice. It's not possible for man to merit a reward from God in strict equality because God is infinitely distant from man. There's the greatest inequality between God and man. Every good of man comes from God. And therefore, with respect to absolute equality, there cannot be any kind of justice between God and man so that God should give man a reward for what he does. The term normally used for merit in strict equality is condign, C-O-N-D-I-G-N, merit. But there is another kind of merit in which someone who is great chooses to reward someone who is small because he does his part in carrying out the work. In other words, when both work according to their manner of working, God chooses to give a reward to man. He doesn't have to. He's not bound to. But he chooses to give a reward to man because a part of man 
being justified or carrying out the will of God is that man should consent to do this. God therefore chooses to reward each in the work according to their proportionate participation. And whatever work, and this is the most important point I think here of all to make, that we do that results from grace is a work of two persons, not one. Or if you want to say the persons of the Trinity are three, it would be four persons and not one. God does his part. Let's say the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does his part, which is like 99%. And man allows this to happen to him, to conform to this, and he does his part, which is like the 1%. The traditional terminology used for this is congruent merit, C-O-N-G-R-U-E-N-T. The primary source of everything that man does with respect to attaining heaven is God. But man consents. He receives this as a free being, and he applies it in living gospel life to the point that he allows his will to be changed by this. God also makes his action his individual action, and that's why different people receive different rewards, depending on how much they have cooperated in God working with them. The Catechism expresses this mystery in this way. First of all, in the section on merit, which begins just before number 2006, the Catechism quotes preface for the Mass, what we call the Common of Holy Men and Women, which they had to retranslate because the translation in the Missal or in the Sacramentary, that's English translation at the moment, didn't exactly capture the theological point. It begins then with this statement, You are glorified in the assembly of your holy ones, for in crowning their merits you are crowning your own gifts. The term merit refers in general to the recompense owed by a community or a society for the action of one of its members, experienced either as beneficial or harmful, deserving reward or punishment. Merit is relative to the virtue of justice in conformity with the principle of equality that governs it. Then 2007 respects the fact that there's no condign merit. With regard to God, there is no strict right to any merit on the part of man. Between God and us, there is an immeasurable inequality, for we have received everything from him, our creator. But then 2008 takes up the question of congruent merit. The merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration, so that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God, then to the faithful. Man's merit, moreover, itself is due to God, for his good actions proceed in Christ from the predispositions and assistance given by the Holy Spirit. 2009. Filial adoption in making us partakers by grace in divine nature can bestow true merit on us as a result of God's gratuitous justice. Thus it is our right by grace, the full right of love, making us co-heirs with Christ and worthy of obtaining the promised inheritance of eternal life. The merits of our good works are gifts of the divine goodness. Grace has gone before us. Now we are given what is due. Our merits are God's gifts. Well, wow, you know, we could say. We are given the glory of participating in realizing our own salvation. And so, we would have to say that when we come to our eternal reward in heaven, God rewards his own part in the work by condign merit. Because remember, he's always involved. And he involves our part in the work by congruent merit. The question then obviously arises if it's possible for a person to merit the first grace for himself. 
And if you look on the gift of grace, remember in two ways, you can look on it according to the grace being free, and in this sense, all merit is repugnant to grace. St. Paul says in Romans 11:6, very rightly, if from works, then not from grace. With respect to the thing itself, which is given, this can't fall under merit either. Because a person who doesn't have grace, receiving grace exceeds the proportion of his nature. And therefore, it's not possible for a person to merit the first grace. Now, there's one or two other beautiful questions here, which St. Thomas discusses and have great importance for our personal life. One is, if it's possible to merit the first grace for another. Now, Christ merits the first grace for us, and he does this by condign merit. But then, of course, as you know, Christ is not only man, he is also God. But then, when it comes to us, is it possible for us to merit the first grace for another? Not by condign merit, certainly, because there's no equality, you could say, by which we can cause God to give grace to another person. But it's possible, because of a kind of friendship on God's part for us, that in a proportionate way, we could earn the grace for another, provided they don't have an obstacle that they put in the way. St. Thomas puts it this way, For if we do God's will in a state of grace, it is a fittingly friendly thing that God should do man's will in return and save the other person. Though sometimes, of course, that other person impedes his own reconciliation. Prayers rely on mercy. Only works of commensurate earning rely on justice. That would be the condign merit. So in other words, it's possible for a person because of the union of friendship with God. And I love the way that's stated. I think I'm going to read that again. If we do God's will in a state of grace, it is a fittingly friendly thing that God should do man's will in return and save the other person. Not required, but fitting because of the union and communion of love. Several examples of this occur in Christian history. The first and most graphic is, of course, Stephen. You remember that when Stephen was being stoned, he looked up to heaven and in imitation of Christ, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And who was holding the coats of the people stoning Stephen and concurring in the act of killing but Saul? Now, the tradition of the church is that it was because of Stephen's prayer, because of his prayer for mercy for St. Paul, because of his forgiveness, that when Stephen did the will of God, God did his will and accomplished the conversion of St. Paul by the means of Stephen's forgiveness. When St. Thomas More was being martyred in England on the scaffold, he invoked this example and he prayed for the conversion of those who were killing him and he forgave them. And I suppose in the 20th century, there's no more graphic example of us by a kind of friendship, a merit of friendship, helping with the conversion of another than Maria Goretti. I don't know if you know much about Maria Goretti, but she was a young unlettered girl who lived in Italy toward the beginning of this century who was very poor. And she was so poor, her parents were forced to live with another family. In this other family, there was a boy who lusted after Maria Goretti. Now, to understand this, you have to remember that when Maria Goretti received her first communion, she went around and begged all the people in the household forgiveness for any sin she had committed against them. I think she was about 12 years old, because in those days it was customary to receive communion later. And she said herself, I never want to commit a sin in my whole life. Anyway, the boy, about a year later, wanted to rape her, actually, and she refused several times. She ran away, and he was so filled with lust, his name was Alessandro, that he said, if she refuses me one more time, I'm going to kill her. 
her father was dead, actually. So when her mother and her family were out working in the fields, the boy snuck back to the house, and Maria Goretti was babysitting for the little children. And he tried to force her to give herself to him, and she refused, and so he stabbed her 14 times with a stake. Now, she lived for about a day, and as she was dying, the priest brought communion to her, and he said, now you know you're a Christian, you have to forgive him. And she said, not only do I forgive him, but I pray that he will be with me in heaven. Now, Alessandro went to prison, and he was very poisoned at life. The crime was a very notorious one in Italy. He had a vision of Maria Goretti in the prison in which she showed him 14 lilies, which he took to be the sign that she had forgiven him. Later, after many years in prison, because he was very young when he was sent there, he left and he couldn't get work because the crime was so notorious, everybody found out who he was and so they'd fire him. So he'd almost despaired of living when he received an invitation to come and visit the rectory where Maria Goretti's shrine was by the priest. And so he went there and he rang the doorbell and who should open the door but Maria Goretti's mother. And so he knelt down and he asked her forgiveness and she said to him, if my daughter has forgiven you, I forgive you. And that night they both received communion in the shrine and the shadow of Maria Goretti's tomb. Many years later, Alessandro became a lay brother, a Capuchin lay brother. And there was an American journalist who came to visit him just before he died, and he asked him if he sometimes despaired of his salvation. Now, while he was stabbing Maria Goretti, she was screaming, but she wasn't screaming, help me, save me, you beast, you brute. She was screaming, Alessandro, don't do this, it's a sin. Don't do this, it's a sin. I want you to be in heaven. He replied, I would despair of my salvation but for the prayers of that girl. Now here's an example of someone who by congruent merit, by friendship with God, can merit the conversion, not in any kind of equality, but by a union of love with God. The Catechism puts it this way, since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit the initial grace of forgiveness and justification at the beginning of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the grace is needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Even temporal goods like help, health, and friendship can be merited in accordance with God's wisdom. These graces and goods are the object of Christian prayer. Prayer attends to the grace we need for meritorious actions. Remember, no one can merit final perseverance. Perseverance in glory does not fall under merit as to arriving there. Once we get there, of course, we merited receiving glory and therefore persevering in having it. But persevering in getting glory on the way there does not fall under our merit. This is something we have to continuously pray for for God because remember, grace has its origin always in God because it is a participation in divine nature. So, let's summarize what we've been saying in all six of these lessons. Man is called to an end by nature that he cannot attain by nature, but only by grace, and that because of the exalted character of the end. What is this end? It is to enter deeply into communion with God. This ability is what formed the difference between all the states of human nature. This ability is what's completed in heaven it's what's begun here on earth in Adam before he committed the sin. It's what's lacking in us when we're considered to be in the state of fallen nature. And when we receive grace back, when we receive this plus back added to our nature, then we have the ability again to arrive at heaven. In Adam's fall, God progressively began to bring us back to himself. He did this first 
to the old law which was given to us on Mount Sinai, which taught us what God's life was like, but which in itself did not give us the ability to live this life. Rather, it called forth faith in someone who would give us this ability, who is Christ the Lord. When Christ the Lord comes, he teaches us the second law. He gives us the second law because the second law, the law of the Holy Spirit, includes not only the actions or the teachings of Jesus, but it also includes his sending the Holy Spirit on Pentecost into our souls. This Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary in his presence for us to arrive at heaven, and it was certainly necessary for Adam. It's also necessary for us who've fallen down to be healed from the condition of our fallen nature. When the Holy Spirit acts in us, this has to be not only the forgiveness of our sins, but also an intimate experience of the persons of the Trinity as persons that color everything that we do. It is this experience that forms our righteousness and our justice. A person cannot be reconciled with God unless they experience the forgiveness of sins and the presence of the Holy Spirit by grace. And to the extent that we allow divine love to move us, we become more and more clinging to God, we become more and more prepared for heaven, and therefore we receive our final reward in a deeper sense, which corresponds first to Him moving us, but then also to our participation through freedom in Him moving us. So you could say that one experiences God more deeply in heaven, has a higher place in heaven, experiences a greater reward in heaven according to the manner in which one has loved God more on earth. That's why, though happiness is primarily an experience of the intellect, it's prepared for by an experience of the will. And that's also why the two great commandments on earth are not know God, although Jesus himself says, this is eternal life, that they shall know him and the one you have sent. The two great commandments on earth are to love him. I guess we should put the last word in this class in the mouth of St. Therese. The Catechism, in the end of the chapter on grace, quotes St. Therese, after earth's exile, I hope to go and join you in the fatherland, our patria, where we really finally belong, heaven. But I do not want them to lay up merits for heaven. I want to work for your love alone. In other words, it isn't a ledger book. It's a question of being more transformed by the power of love. In the evening of this life, I shall appear before you with empty hands. For I do not ask you, Lord, to count my works. All our justice is blemished in your eyes. I wish then to be clothed in your own justice and to receive from your love the eternal possession of yourself. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.